0: In the times that are the most confusing, the most anxious, the most worrisome, the most fearful and difficult, in the times when we are wondering what in the world is going on and what's next, in times just like this, the best move is to dig down to the foundation is to go back to the source, is to get to the heart, is to strip away all the outer layers and remember that of which we are most sure. In a tornado, in an earthquake, you don't go and stand on your roof or out on your deck to watch the chaos come. You go to the surest spot in the house. As Christians, what surer place can we go than to the feet of Jesus, to sit at his feet and listen again to his words, to dwell in his presence and drink it deep. And with Christ firmly established as our cornerstone to then lift our eyes to the storms of this world and see what we can see. And that's what we're gonna do together. In this next season, we're going to come to Jesus and sit at his feet, listening to the stories that he tells. These stories were meant to shape the imaginations of his first followers about who Jesus is, about what it is that he's doing, and about what it means to follow him in this world. So if you feel cast about by the storms of life, if you feel anxious or fearful or angry or numb, come with me for a little while. Let's sit with Jesus and hear what he has to say. Let's pray and then we'll open our Bibles together. Lord, it's in your light that we see light. It's in your truth that we find freedom and in your way that we find peace. So come and shine upon us, we pray, that we might see you and follow. In your name we pray. Amen. Do whatever you need to do to listen well. That might mean leaning in. That might mean standing up. That might mean setting something down. It might mean following along in your Bible. It might mean closing your eyes to imagine the scene. Do whatever you need to do to not just hear these words, but to listen well to these words from the book that we love. a legal expert, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus replied, what does it say in the law and how do you interpret it? The man replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right. So he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, There was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up, and left him near death. Now, it just so happened that a priest was coming by that same road, and when he saw the injured man, he Crossed to the other side and went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came by that same spot, and when he saw the injured man, he crossed to the other side and went on his way. A Samaritan who was on a journey also came to where the man was. But when the Samaritan saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to where he was, bandaged his wounds, tended them with oil and wine. Then he placed him on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he gave two full days wages to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I return, I will repay you for any additional costs." What do you think? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? The legal expert said to Jesus, the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord Thanks be to God. Amen. The Good Samaritan. Luke ten twenty five to 37 A story so well-known, so popular, so a part of our culture and imagination that it has completely changed the definition of the word Samaritan in the English language. Think about it. We have Good Samaritan laws. We have organizations like Samaritan's Purse. For us, Samaritan means... Someone who stops to help someone in need. That's not at all what the word meant in Jesus' day. Samaritans were those who lived in Samaria. In the land north of Judah, where Jerusalem was, and south of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus lived and began his ministry. It was formerly the home of the ten northern tribes of Israel. But when they were conquered, destroyed, and brought off into exile by the Assyrians, never to be heard from again, those who remained intermarried with the surrounding nations. And in the eyes of the Jews, they corrupted themselves. They were half-breeds. They didn't worship in Jerusalem. They didn't follow God quite the same way. They thought they were the rightful heirs of Abraham. And the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans was always bubbling up. Not unlike their modern-day descendants, the Palestinians and the Jews. But things Got even worse around the time Jesus was born, when some Samaritans under the cover of darkness came into the temple and strewn about bones to desecrate the whole space. Things never really recovered from there. The two hated and despised one another. And it's actually right through the land of the Samaritans that Jesus was traveling when he tells this story. As we said, he grew up and began his ministry in Galilee in the north. And to get to Jerusalem for the various pilgrim festivals, one had to travel through Samaria. And Jesus' disciples had actually already had some interactions with the Samaritans along the way. As they're leaving to go to Jerusalem, they send out messengers ahead of them that Jesus is coming. And the messengers are not received. Jesus is not received because he's going on to Jerusalem and not staying in Samaria And so the two sons of thunder, as they were known, James and John, want to call forth the fire of heaven to destroy these Samaritans for inhospitality. That's the state of the relationship at the moment. That's the tension between these two groups. To the Jews, the Samaritans are simply the bad guys. They weren't the sort you would expect to stop to help you, and they certainly weren't the type that you would stop to help. But such is the power of this story, that this word can be so thoroughly transformed. The Good Samaritan. It's a story we think we know so well. Uh, And we think it's a story that simply teaches us that if we see someone in need we should stop to help content with that we generally move on to other stories and that may be at one level the meaning of what Jesus says here but it far from exhausts the meaning of this teaching of Jesus the question after all that frames the whole story isn't what should you do when you see someone who needs help it's how do i please god What must I do to gain eternal life? What does God want from my life? The legal expert is asking Jesus. What's required of me? And the legal expert uses this question, it says, to test Jesus. But Jesus turns it back on him. The man answers with an answer now that we'll all likely know and affirm. What does the law say? What do you think? And he responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The man quotes the same two commandments Jesus quotes in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? This double commandment to love God and love neighbor, taken from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 and woven together And as the man quotes these two verses, Jesus agrees. You've answered correctly, he says. Do this, and you will live. Do this. Notice that Jesus is not content that we know the right answers, that we believe the right things, that we can check the right box on the test, that we can repeat back the formulas correctly. We need to live it out. We need to do it. We need to put it into practice. We need to live and use the answers we know. And whether it's because the legal expert thinks he can still best Jesus, or if it's because he wants to justify himself literally to to make himself righteous, the man asks a follow-up question. A question that reverberates down through the canyons of time. Who is my neighbor? It's that question that inspires this Good Samaritan story, and it's that question I would submit that we continue to ask a thousand times a day. Now, we generally don't get as far as actually asking that question out loud to someone, but we do what that question does every single day a thousand times. Who is my neighbor? The man wants to know where the line is. Who's in? Who's out? Who do I have to love? How far does this circle of compassion have to spread out? To put it the other way around, who around me do I not have to love? Who can I exclude? Who can I write off? And as Jesus pokes at his listeners, he draws out the most present example. And he makes the hero of his story a Samaritan. That's an easy label to smack on an entire neighboring nation, to turn them from neighbors into enemies, to take away their personhood, their will, their story, their experience, everything about them, and turn them simply into cardboard cutouts of themselves in order to more easily disregard. Until it gets to the point we're so good at this, we no longer even think about it. We no longer even consider these others to be worthy of love. We wouldn't even think the terms would apply to them. And we don't use the term Samaritan to do this anymore. We have plenty of our own labels that do the same thing. Sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's unconscious, but we've gotten extremely good at what I'm going to call de-neighboring people at removing them from the boundaries of our love and compassion, from that closed set which we have to love. The most fitting example these days are political. Red state, blue state, labeling where someone's from in order to determine if they matter or not. Republican or Democrat, lefty or deplorable, cute terms we use to refer to one another, that strips us of our personhood and turns us into cardboard cutouts with no depth whatsoever, that we no longer have to really regard or consider or be curious about or certainly to love. We have a myriad of litmus tests for one another, And if the other lands on the wrong side, we turn them into cardboard. No depth, no personhood, no complexity, no love. We write people off so quickly because of what we assume to be true about them. We de people because of politics, religion, race and ethnicity, socioeconomic status education level, ability or disability, and the list goes on and on. Neuroscientists can tell us that as we listen to one another in conversation, it takes a fraction of a second for us to decide if we agree or disagree, and we begin immediately to then posture our response based on whether we like or don't like what that person has said. We don't even listen to each other anymore, if we ever did in the first place. We all go about de each other, drawing boundaries around who deserves our love and our compassion and who doesn't, until we're left with a pretty small circle of people who look like us, think like us, like us, and agree with us. And the same, it seems, was true in the first century. Because when the legal expert asks Jesus, who is my neighbor, he does so knowing the commonly accepted answer of the Pharisees at the time. Who is your neighbor? It's your fellow Jew, at least the good ones, those who follow the law and interpret it the same way you do, those who worship in the same way you do. Those are your neighbors. Those are the ones you must love. Essentially, those who look like you, think like you, and agree with you on all the important issues of the day. That's the accepted answer of the day. But that's not the answer Jesus gives, is it? In fact, Jesus doesn't even give an answer, does he? He doesn't answer the question because it's not a good question. It's the wrong question. The question shouldn't be, who is my neighbor? How far do I have to go in love? Where are the boundaries? Who's in and who's out? Who do I have to love doesn't really sound like love, does it? The question Jesus is interested in is the question he asks at the end of the story. Not, who is my neighbor? But, which of these was a neighbor? It's a subtle but important change of the question. And as Jesus ends the passage, go and do likewise, the question that falls to us, at least if we actually desire to be Jesus' followers, is this. Not who's in, who's out, who is my neighbor, but how can you be a neighbor? Who needs you to be their neighbor? And that's a very different question to ask. It's a very different posture to take. And as we begin to go down this way with Jesus, we find that the boundaries of our love and compassion stop shrinking and begin to grow rapidly. Who needs you to be their neighbor? One example that comes quickly to mind is a ministry that some of you have been a part of in the city called Don't Walk By that sends people down the streets of Manhattan to simply not walk by people. Generally, people who are experiencing homelessness on the streets, to repersonalize them with the dignity of a conversation, to look them in the eyes and to talk with them and ask questions, to stop and spend time with them, to get to know them and find out who they are and what they need so that you can then go about maybe meeting some of those needs or plugging them into resources to do so. In other words, to not do what the rest of us do every day and just walk past, avoiding eye contact, pretending they're not there, like they're not people who deserve our attention and some level of dignity. Who needs you to be their neighbor? Stop walking by. And I don't just mean walking by someone experiencing homelessness either. I mean your physical neighbors. I mean that person at work and you know who I'm talking about. I know the church member who disagrees with you politically. I mean the clerk at the store. And as this list goes on and on, we begin to realize, I think, how far it's actually going to extend. And I begin to wonder why the legal expert didn't ask a far more important question. Not who's my neighbor, but how am I supposed to do this? Right? When we begin to really grasp what Jesus means and who Jesus is telling us now we have to love, who, what, how we need to be, the question that comes to the surface is, How? How can I love these people? How can I possibly love the one who has hurt me, the one whom I know I can't trust, the one who's a jerk, the one who sees the world so differently, the one who isn't like me and the one who doesn't like me, the one who I believe is wrong and dangerous? How, Jesus, can I possibly love my neighbors? The answer's there, in the story. Hiding. And it's the one piece of good news in the whole story. Look again. Because from at least the beginning of the second century... Christians have believed that here in this parable, when Jesus is describing the Good Samaritan, at some deeper level, he's talking about himself. Think about it. We are those going down from the city of God, Jerusalem, descending into sin, we are there jumped by thieves, robbed of everything, stripped naked and left for dead. Jesus may not be a Samaritan, but he's an outsider who comes on the scene after the priests and Levites, symbols of the religious structures of our world, have failed to do anything about our sad state of affairs and simply kept going on their way. When he sees us, he is moved with compassion And the first thing he does is come near to where we are in the Incarnation. He comes and bandages and tends, dressing our wounds. He binds up the brokenhearted. He bears us then by his own way to an inn to the church, where we can be nursed back to health. He takes our debt upon himself, paying for our stay, by the way, more than three weeks of a stay and vowing to pay any other additional cost that would be needed, vowing to return and settle the debt forever at great cost to himself. All of this in hostile territory for we who are his enemies. Friends, Jesus is the good Samaritan Jesus is the only one who proves himself to be a neighbor to the rest of us who have encountered thieves along the road of life. And it's that love, the extravagant love of Jesus poured out upon us while we are still enemies, while we are lying naked, broke, and dying in the streets. It is that love which we do not deserve, which we cannot repay, and which we thankfully cannot exhaust. That's How we can love our neighbors as ourselves. Because we have been loved by the ultimate neighbor. Because the love in us is not our own, but his. Because, as Eugene Peterson said, having become a neighbor through Jesus' story, we now find another neighbor to love at every turn of the road. Who needs you to be their neighbor? Stop walking by. Stop scrolling by. Be a neighbor. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.